QCR Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Burung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to the elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nation people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, everyone. And good morning, Grace. Good morning, Judith. How have you been? I've been good. A bit cold this morning. I'm really chilly. It was a shock when I got out of bed, I yes, tell you. Yes, definitely. I was freezing completely today as I was walking out of my apartment. And I was just like, oh my goodness, it's never been this cold. Isn't it meant to be summer already? And it, <laughs> yes. it, felt, it felt like winter. It sure did. Uh, but the good thing was the sun is shining and that's nice. Yeah, that's know. lovely. Hopefully it's it gets a bit warmer towards the afternoon because I don't want to come out today <laughs> if it's too cold. Thank you for getting here. <laughs> yes, definitely. And you know what? The good news is it's going to warm up uh, on the weekend. I, I even read, I think, 25, either Saturday or Sunday. So we can be we can hope for that. And, and of course, you'll be warm because you'll be in Malaysia by then. Oh, yes. Malaysia has always been a summer place. There's never been winter. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited to go back and fill the warmth every day but also if it gets too hot I'll be like oh my <laughs> then you start I remembering <laughs> yeah. cool cool Melbourne <laughs> yes definitely but uh, yeah I'm just I'm just so happy to be going back soon I can't believe it's it's so quick you know one week has passed and next week you know I'm back at home after nine yes. months of being here and are you starting to relax now that all your assignments are in and... yes definitely I finished I finished submitting my last my last um, assignment last Friday and then yeah um, I was officially done by then even though the due dates were extended for some reasons until today I mean I mean until Monday of this week but then I was like nah I'm gonna finish You're it gonna, yes. <laughs> I'm not gonna wait till the due date doesn't doesn't make any sense anyways for me I rather yeah. just finish quick and start my celebration <laughs> yeah for sure and um we also yeah Grace you and I and uh, so we're missing Claudia but she's gonna be back next week yes Claudia yeah, Claudia's away at the moment, but um, yeah, we can't wait to have her back. Although, unfortunately, I won't be able to be here no, with her you, next you, week. But okay. that's okay. I'll be listening in on the, in the morning. Great, and and I think we're going to be welcoming Jacob Jacob Gamble back as well. Yes, definitely. Jacob uh, is currently on Earth Matters, as I've just heard them just now. But yes, uh, yes very excited to be having Jacob next weekend as well. Yeah, and you know we should also you know just say thanks to Earth Matters for that show before this you know that came just before us, mm-hmm. and Jacob did that show and it was fantastic about the Burrung or the Yarra River, the history of that. So I really enjoyed it, and uh, if anyone missed it, uh, yeah, you can listen back on 3CR forward slash earth matters it was just a lovely show really yeah yes, so much great information about the river mm-hmm. and it's always nice to have a bit of insight towards the environment yeah yeah, yeah for sure yeah. and um 
Yeah, so over the weekend, uh, I you know, I mean, I didn't have assignments, <laughs> so that was nice. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was reading a book about Australian women war correspondents from the Boer War in the 1800s to Vietnam. Oh. Yeah, I and it was it. fascinating because it was about, you know, all the discrimination, of course, that they experienced mm-hmm. and, um, and, and just how gutsy they were. So that was um, a really lovely thing to be reading. And and I also managed to sneak out between the showers <laughs> to do some Tai Chi in the park. Oh, yes. And usually it was sunny in the morning. It was mm-hmm. really, we'd have a few hours of sun, so I was mm-hmm. able to run out and do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's, a Tai Chi is actually a very, I would say, a really good exercise to give you that energy and the it is lovely, yeah, and balance. It's good for balance, but it's really good for relaxing. And, yes. uh, it's, and it's amazing how many people come up to you in the park and they know it's Tai Chi mm-hmm. and they say, I just really love seeing that slow movement. So, yes. Yeah, and, and of course I love doing it. So. <laughs> Me too. Yes. Yeah, it's such a good thing. Yes. Well, so we've got a lot this morning, yes? As we usual. do. Definitely. We have. Well, the first segment is going to be about Claudia's segment, yes? Um, yeah, Claudia yeah. has very kindly, even though she's not here in person, we're going to hear her voice, which is wonderful. And uh, so she's prepared a piece about um, gambling dependence or gambling addiction. And it's very appropriate coming in the day after the Melbourne Cup, I would say. so. And also this morning there was breaking news that there's going to be new warning signs um, put on websites. So that, that was interesting and something to follow up perhaps at another time to prevent you know, to prevent gambling yep. or to make people think twice. At the moment, it's just gamble responsibly. But now they've, um, yeah, they've, they're going to add seven new messages that are more powerful. So that, that will be interesting. So yes, we'll hear from Claudia, which will be wonderful. And um, then after that, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Mark Taylor. He's Victoria's chief environmental scientist, and he's at the Environment Protection Authority, or the EPA. I think most of the Victorians know it as. And he's going to talk about what his colleagues found in the water and the mud following the flooding of the Maribyrnong River just a few weeks ago. I mean, last month in October, because we're in November now. But anyway, yeah, that was fascinating. And after that, Greg Denham from Co-Health's Co-Health Community Partnerships Facilitator. He's going to join us on the line to look at new laws that have been passed in the ACT, decriminalizing possession of small quantities of illegal drugs. Now, this isn't new, but new for Australia. It was done in Portugal 20 years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, well, more than, uh, yeah, I mean, more broadly even than that. And um, And then... Grace, I think you've got something really fascinating coming up. Yes. Um, so for the last thing today, I'll be speaking with uh, Jordan Zhao, who's a former digital strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and head of social media for the special broadcasting service. And we will be speaking with him to discuss his newly released book, which is called uh, Disconnect. It dwells on reasons we get pushed to extremes online and how to stop it. So it's a very interesting book that's going to be, uh, that explains about uh, why we get pushed to things that we see online and have conspiracy theories about them uh, to, uh, and get addicted, I would say, to 
seeing all these conspiracy theories and um, believing them, even though a lot of them might not exactly be true, entirely be true. So yeah, very looking forward to be learning about what's going to come out in this book. Of course, we don't want to give too much away, but... Um, no, no. <laughs> definitely, but um, yeah. And, have, and it's only just been released, I think, the yes, book. Yes, it was actually just only released on November 1st. So, and oh, that's yesterday. Uh, exactly, it's just yesterday. So <laughs> yeah. Got, got to speak with the author right away. Yay. And so, yes, we will, it's available on all platforms. So if, um, yeah, when we speak to the author later, then hopefully you will want to buy the book after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm all, I already do. Yeah, it sounds really fascinating. <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, well. so um, before we head on to uh, letting... Oh, oh sorry, there's just yeah. one announcement uh, uh, that I'd like to make before, oh, before no we just head for some music. And that is, um, I know that so many people listening will have been deeply distressed. And for any First Nations peoples listening, this is related to a, a recent death. Um, so just uh, just a warning for that. Uh, and we all have been deeply distressed by the tragic death of Cassius Turvey in Perth on October 13th. And there's going to be a vigil for him tonight in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri Country. It's at the Aboriginal Advancement League at 6 p.m. And that's at 2 Watt Street in Thornbury. And I'll just say that again. That's the Aboriginal Advancement League. It's on at 6 p.m. at 2 Watt Street in Thornbury tonight at 6. And I'm sure a lot of people will want to go along and join in that vigil. Yes, definitely. Well, before we head on to Claudia's uh, to take over, we've got a song for you. This is called Stranger by Spinifex.
was Stranger by Spinifex, and now we'll be letting Claudia take over. Hi, I'm Claudia. Next up, we're going to hear about the lived experience of a person who overcame an addiction to social media gaming. Ange spoke to Bill Pitt from 3CR's Living Free program, where she shared what led her into gambling and how she moved from a place of addiction to recovery. Hi, Bill. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you back. Ange is a compulsive gambler uh, who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. First off, do you want to just give us a quick um, bio of, of how you got into gambling uh, and yeah. where it took you? Sure, sure. Um, well, I haven't, um, I'm currently haven't had a bet for nearly four years, which, you know, is an absolute blessing. Um, my gambling journey was a slow burn, I suppose, when um, the first time I ever played um, the pokies when, you know, you had to travel across to New South Wales and it was on holidays and um, you know, it was great fun. It used to be a lot of fun to, to go and have a bet. But um, I suppose over time, my the fun disappeared and my I had a few um, major events in my life which uh, which made my, my gambling and my need to escape um, overwhelming, I suppose, is the best word to use. Um, my young... My, da- my daughter was... Um, in high school and was diagnosed with with cancer and so she was going through chemotherapy and doing year 12 and so it was very stressful um and then at uh, while this was all going on my husband who is also um a recovering alcoholic he he became very very sick and um so i suppose it was the catalyst um those those big events when i look back that that made my want to gamble and escape my reality quite, over, oh well, completely overpowering. And then ultimately, you know, I ended up thinking of nothing else but when I was going to have my next bet and how I was going to do it. And I think, um, as you said, my <laughs> I had convinced myself that if I, because you can, you can find online games that are free, um, and I thought, well, that's fine, I'll just play those on my phone and um, or my iPad and uh, well eventually I just I would do that with every spare second I had and I would the free games didn't last as long as I'd like because I wanted to keep gambling so you had to buy credits so I would buy them um, you know to start off with just a few dollars and then you know the more credits you got more credits the more you spent and then I'd, I'd convince myself that it was cheaper than going to a venue because um you know, I wasn't going to spend as much, but <laughs> over time that changed. And I got to a point where um, I was never going to win any money. All I ever wanted to do was win enough credit to just keep gambling. And so, you know, I suppose many gamblers would say that they gamble because they want the money or the money will help to rectify the damage that they've caused in their life. So they just have to have that big win. Um, but that never that wasn't wasn't me. Um, it was never about the money. It was just about the escape. And however I could find it was, and when it when it's in my hand, and so easy to do, I just spent, you know, hours and hours and hours of every day on my iPad, hypnotised by the online game. Um, and <laughs> they still pop up occasionally as little things on the bottom of different things, but. Um, they, they still find you 
you have to be so careful. And I, I feel for um, the young addicted gambler who um, uses their online, use their phone to do everything. That's their lives. Their their banking, their communication, their everything, and it's also so easy to gamble because it's just it's always at the end of your hand. So you don't have to go to a venue anymore. It's just so accessible, and 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 it's scary really that it can be so easy to get trapped. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's 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 really frightening that um, being locked into a device. It's a bit like people with an eating disorder. They've still got to eat, um, but if you if you are a compulsive eater, you have to be able to manage that. Um, yeah, what everybody else takes for granted, you've got to manage. You know, quite um, directly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was interested in uh, what you were saying about uh, the free credits and and I guess encouraging you to to get more and more to be able to gamble more and more. You mentioned about gamblers after the big win, but I, I think from what I've spoken to gamblers about, it's it's really trying. The big win is to try and recover the losses, to try and yeah. get back to zero. Um, and, and I guess it's the same um, with you um, in just just trying to. It, it's taking it's taking all that time away so that you don't have to worry about other things. Um, yeah. And it's just that's, leads that's to it. a lot of isolation. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I would um, be under the doona in the spare room because I'd say that my husband was snoring, so I could go in there and I'd, I, you know, I'd be playing into the middle of the night. And um, and then when I try and go to sleep, I was so overstimulated, I couldn't. You know, my bells and whistles and <laughs> noises and flashing lights were all still whirring around in my head. Uh, it, it, it's such, you know, I look back and think. I mean, I, I I know that I was completely crazy and insane, and I look back now and just think how consumed I was and how, how free I feel now um, when, when I don't have to think about that. It, it just lends my, leaves me so much space to do other things with my life that I wasn't able to do before. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So do you want to talk about what it was that caused you to think you've got to, you've got to stop, you've got to get help? What, what was it that triggered you to uh, take action? Um, it was, I suppose... There was another event going on in my life at the time when I stopped. So coming up four years for me, I was um, finishing my treatment for breast cancer. So I kind of, I suppose, I had that in my head. That was another reason to escape my, you know, my circumstances. And my husband, who was, you know, it was just the two of us living at home and, you know, I'd always have the iPad in my hand and I was always in when the telly was on, I'd be always playing games. And he would sort of come over and go, you know, you're addicted to that thing. You need to get rid of it and I'd take no notice. But one day, um, I think he picked it up and saw all the games that were on it. And he turned around. And I only remembered this the other day because somebody mentioned something at a meeting that triggered the memory of it. Um, anyway, he he turned around and just started to cry. <laughs> Sorry. And said um, that he thought that he'd ruined my life. Sorry, Bill. Um, That's okay. And, um, yep. So that was the moment. That was the moment when I realised that I was what damage I was just not only doing to myself but to him. So um, anyway, together we picked up a hammer and we smashed. <laughs> we both smashed the um, the iPad up, and um, and then I 
I went that night, the, that same very night, I went to my very first GA meeting. I, I finished my last um, radiotherapy treatment and walked sort of from the hospital straight to the meeting, I suppose, and started this new journey that's been so great. But, yeah, that was that was definitely the moment. And if you've just tuned in, we've been listening to a conversation between Ange and 3CR's Living Free host, Bill Pitt. Ange has been sharing her personal experience of compulsive gambling using social media games. Something, she says, started out as fun, then slowly overpowered her life. The turning point for Ange was seeing the impact of her addiction on her husband. She then sought support through Gamblers Anonymous and has not had a bet for four years. We're going to pick up the conversation again where Ange explains how Gamblers Anonymous worked for her. It's a kind of a magic thing, I, I, I always think. Um, one of the members in our group says it, it's really weird that a group of well, a group of strangers can come together and help each other and support one another and um, and then just sort of leave and not necessarily have anything to do with each other from day to day. Um, I don't know. I just, I honestly, I honestly believe um, that there's a kind of that spiritual magic, I suppose, in a room full of people who completely understand each other and you don't necessarily... Um, know anything about the other members' lives um, other than what they share with us at a meeting, but we we have a we have a common a common illness that 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 binds us in a in a really unusual way. Um, so I remember my very first meeting, the one that I went to when I was you know a wreck, and I sat in a room and I think there was only about maybe six or seven people there, maybe a bit more. Um, me and one other lady, the rest were all men, and um, being amazed at the fact that everything they said, I just totally got, like, you know, I was like, it was insane. So um, then, you know, we had COVID and we all went to Zoom meetings and things like that, and, and they were totally able to offer us a fabulous service in a time when we couldn't all get together. But I can remember the first meeting when we got back together in a room and it was it was electric like that incredible energy that's in a room full of people who who um who share something so strange I suppose but also that understanding and that sense of belonging that comes with going to meetings that only can happen in in my opinion anyway um when we're all together in a room and uh I suppose I felt that feeling of sanctuary when I went to my first meeting. I felt acceptance. I felt an understanding. I felt um, a belonging, um, and also, you know, that um, an acceptance, which was so comforting to know that there were people who, who. Well, the other thing that I noticed that always struck me was they all looked happy. On my first meeting, I went. Everybody looked happy. I'm thinking, well, how can you be happy? You're all compulsive gamblers. But, of course, you know, they weren't gambling. And even if you weren't gambling for a, a couple of days or whether it was a week, a month or however many years, everybody was happy because together we'd all overcome, even for some length of time, a small length of time, um, our addiction. So that feeling was 
was very was very comforting and um there was one member who was at my first meeting who spoke and told his story and um he he's now got 23 plus 24 years of ha- of um not having had a bet um and he just he just said that he even now thinks that he if he doesn't go to a meeting every week if he doesn't talk to a member or another GA member at least once a week that he thinks that he will gamble again even after all these years. So his story was very um, enlightening and also kind of it, it gave me a lot of a lot of um, a lot of hope and also a sense of discipline about going to meetings and um, you know that I don't ever want to gamble again. I never want to feel the way I felt before. So if going to a meeting and sitting in a room full of strangers and talking about our illness um, means I don't, then it's it's an easy price to pay for the things we've done in the past. Yeah. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah, you, yeah. you mentioned um, sitting in a room of strangers. Um, the strangers become friends, which is, mm. again, another interesting interesting journey in, in a fellowship. Um, but I was sort of thinking that one of the things that I noted was that a lot of people had worse stories than I did. So did you notice that, that people had worse stories, but they'd still, they were still there and they were still heading forward? Yep. Oh, yeah, because some of them had been terrible places in jail and, um, you know, lost their families and all their relatives and friends had kind of forsaken them and they were terrible, you know. They were the people who, you know, when I said about getting on the train and getting off a few steps before the end, I think they, those ones had gone the whole, taken the whole trip the whole way and I'm sure it was hell for them, absolute hell. Um, yeah, and the other thing, yeah, so there was a couple of things that really struck me. One of them was that they were, um, they were smiling, they were, content, you know, they were, they were happy, that, um, that their stories were, were terrifying. Um, but the other thing was, that they were all intelligent people, you know, that we wasn't sitting in a room full enough enough to just were completely stupid. Like we weren't stupid people, but we were stupid. We were not, you know, not stupid people doing the most stupid things. So to me, that was just kind of so paradoxical that um, people with obvious intellect who had great jobs and were smart people could be so stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny when you talk about being stupid. If you consider it to be you know, an illness like you know cancer or other things that you you, you don't choose it uh, necessarily. No. So it it covers the whole range of the whole range of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, uh, we better wind up. So <clears throat> if anybody would like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, you can phone them in Victoria on o three nine six nine six six one zero eight. Or you can go online at gaaustralia.org.au for more information on recovery from compulsive gambling. So I'd like to thank Ange for sharing her gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous has helped her. Thanks, Ange. You're welcome, Bill. Thank you for providing the platform for us all to learn a bit more about each other. Thank you. (laughs) No worries. And that was Ange speaking about the way Gamblers Anonymous helped her find a pathway to recovery from a gambling addiction involving social media games. Ange was speaking with Bill Pitt from 3CR's Living Free program. 
which airs every Thursday afternoon, 1 to 2 p.m. Living Free has been running for 25 years on 3CR and is a program dedicated to sharing stories of addiction and recovery. If you would like to hear the rest of Angie's story, head to the September 1 episode on the Living Free webpage at www.3cr.org.au and you'll also find a list of useful resources and contact numbers there. To contact Gamblers Anonymous, call 03 9696 6108 or go to their website gaaustralia.org.au or lowercase. I'm Claudia and now back to the team. Thank you so much, Claudia, for that uh, lovely, sorry, not lovely, um, for introducing a topic about uh, gaming, uh, social media gambling. And now before we, before I pass on to Judith, uh, we've got a song for you. This is called Love Without Limit by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks.
Emma Donovan and the Footbacks with Love Without Limit and that's such an amazing voice. I really love Emma Donovan and the Footbacks and uh, every time I hear her it just seems to get stronger and better. It's such a yeah, beautiful, beautiful voice, beautiful music. You're on 3CR and the show is Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Judith Peppard and I'm here with Grace. Yes, I'm here. You are? It's great. And uh, this morning we've been um, just hearing about uh, a story about uh, dependence, uh, addiction on um, gambling. And that was um, yeah, really special and important right now, I think, the day after the Melbourne Cup. So, yeah, big thank you again to, to Claudia and to Ange for sharing her story. And, um, yeah, I was, I was quite moved by that. Yes. Yeah. So people listening this morning will have certainly be remembering and will have seen the images on their tellies of the flooding of the Maribyrnong River just a few weeks ago. And in addition to the damage to homes and businesses, the community was very concerned about the water and the sediment that the flood had washed into their home and and the contaminants they might have contained. I mean, the Maribyrnong River has not been swimmable, for example, for quite some time. Now, my next guest is Mark Taylor. He's Victoria's Chief Environmental Scientist at the Environment Protection Authority, or EPA, in Victoria, and he's also an honorary professor of environmental science and human health at Macquarie University. Now, Mark and his colleagues have investigated what's in the mud, and I caught up with him on Monday afternoon, and and very grateful, too, on late Monday afternoon to Mark for making time, and began by asking him about the impact of flooding on the waterways and the floodplains. Flooding on floodplains is beneficial because in natural environments, it returns nutrients and sediments to the floodplain. It re-nourishes the floodplain. Clearly, if people have built or got homes on the floodplain, their homes are flooded, that's an adverse impact. But, you know, floodplains are planes that flood, and they're there for a reason, and they're there to help ameliorate the impact of a flood on a system. So it reduces the speed and the volume of discharge moving down through a river. So in some ways, you know, they are protected. That's the whole intent. But when we build on them, which we've done all over the world, it then creates a conflict between 
nature and human environments. Yes, that really makes sense. The recent flooding of the Maribyrnong River in Melbourne's inner west caused lots of concern, and not only because the damage caused to people's homes, that was huge, but also because of the river's industrial past. What are we looking at there when we talk about the Maribyrnong River's industrial past? Well, we know there was a munitions factory in the catchment, and at the top end of the system, there is Melbourne Airport, Tullamarine, which is known to be a source of AFFF. AFFF is um, aqueous firefighting foam, which contains perfluorinated chemicals. We know that they're leaking off the site, and we know that the Maribyrnong River's got PFAS in it to different degrees. Also, it's industries, legacy contaminants in the system. So all of those things are in people's minds when the river flooded and deposited sediments in their homes, across their gardens and across their public open space. It's an industrial catchment. That's what generated the concern. How did the Environment Protection Authority Victoria, or EPA Victoria, how did their science division respond to people's concerns about industrial waste during the flooding? Well, it's a great question. We got a call from the local council, Maribyrnong Council, on Wednesday morning, and we deployed staff within a couple of hours to start doing some preliminary sampling of the sediments. And also we set up water sampling at three points along the river. That water sampling occurred every day for a week, and now we're going back to weekly because the flood is obviously dissipated. The discharge is falling. In terms of the flood sediments, we visited I haven't seen the final number, but it's around about 130 homes where we've collected uh, sediments from their yards for analysis. And we've also collected samples in public open space for analysis. And we've analysed those to ascertain what sort of types and chemicals and compounds of concern to mum and dad. As we would expect, the floodwaters do have higher amounts of E. coli in them. And this is because sewage treatment systems are inundated during flooding and the sewage gets washed into the river. Of course, it's dilute, but that also forms part of the microbial burden in the water. You can couple that with, you know, feces from natural and domestic animals getting into the water. So it's not uncommon nor unsurprising to find that floodwaters have elevated levels of E. coli and Enterococcus. We did the same sorts of sampling and analysis in sediment. Out of all the things that we looked at, trace elements, hydrocarbons, perfluorinated chemicals, what we can see is that really the biggest risk of concern is the pathogen risk of you know working with trying to clean up the sediment in their gardens and in their homes. In order to deal with that, what we've recommended to people is that they obviously wear boots and gloves and a face mask, and they wash their hands and face thoroughly after working in the yards and cleaning up, and they leave their shoes off before they go back indoors. I mean, you did mention the E. coli. You did say in your paper that exposure to sunlight is expected to reduce these uh, pathogen levels. That's right. That's what the evidence shows. Over a couple of weeks, the grass will have gone through, the soil microbes will have done their work, and the UV light will have all the effect on um, attenuating the growth uh, of E. coli or any other pathogens in the sediment. And, and that's pretty natural. We use UV in water treatment processes anyway. So nature will do its job and make it safe. Yes. And you found that the chemicals uh, and the components an- analyzed were mostly below levels of concern for human health. Extremely low levels, residential guidelines. There are different higher acceptable levels in public open space versus residential backyards. We found that all of the samples, I think there was a couple that were a little bit higher in people's backyards for lead, but the average value was significantly below any levels of concern. 
there's a little bit of PFOS in the sediments. We expected that, but it's at least an order of magnitude below human health guidelines. So I think, although we've seen what we've expected, that floods dilute any contaminants in the catchment and you know, because you've got water draining off clean catchments as well as relatively industrial catchments or dirty catchments. The sum of it is that, you know, there's obviously cleaner water and cleaner sediment being mixed with any contaminants. And the overall package is that the actual risk from trace contaminants other than E. coli is minimal, which is a good news story. Having said that, in other parts of the world, in other circumstances with other catchment activities, particularly where there's been metal mining, we can see a bit of a different story. But that's not what we see here. Yes, and it is reassuring to hear this, I must say, in the midst of so much sad news that's going on around the environment. And just coming back to the Maribyrnong River, why was it such a high risk? Why is it considered a high risk? It's an industrial catchment. Uh, the legacy contaminants as a result of industrial activity may pose a risk of concern or the potential exposure but for exposure to occur there has to be a pathway so you may have a hazard but it only becomes a risk when you create a pathway and that is why we say to people stay out the floodwaters you're going to clean up the sediments where proper personal protective equipment and just take sensible normal precautions don't let your kids play in the mud eat your pets out of it and that minimizes that opportunity for the mud and the sediments to be ingested. And I was curious about why the contamination levels weren't higher, but I think you've already explained that. Well, the solution to the pollution in this case is dilution, definitely. You know, by virtue of looking, assessing the sediments and the waters, we can see the concentrations are not of significant concern. And if you've just joined us on 3CR this morning, I'm speaking with Professor Mark Taylor. He's the Chief Environmental Scientist at the Environment Protection Authority, or EPA, in Victoria. And we're looking at the flooding of the Maribyrnong River and what the EPA scientists found when they analyzed water samples from the river and flood sediments in public areas and in people's gardens as well. And while the news is good, the contaminants that they did find weren't at a level that would cause risk to people's health. I was curious about the lead in the soil. Here's Mark Taylor again. We used leaded gasoline for seven decades. Most of that lead that came out of the tailpipes of motor vehicles. More than 50% of that was deposited in urban environments of our large cities, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, for example. And lead's an element and doesn't go away. It just accumulates in the soils and it will remain there. And based upon all the samples that I've looked at during my career, which is in the order of about 30,000 samples right across Australia, we can see that the pattern's very clear. Older inner city parts of all of the major cities typically have contaminated soils. And that's largely from leaded gasoline plus lead paint, which was used on interior and exterior buildings. Those buildings have been subject to renovation over time and paint chips and dust would have accumulated in the soils. We know that soil environments in cities are lead contaminated. It's well established. There's no big secret. You know, that's an element of concern. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a munitions factory, an old munitions factory in the Maribyrnong catchment. And that obviously, you know, they were using lead in the, in the construction of munitions for the war. And people were concerned that that may have been trained and deposited lead contamination on top of the legacy stuff, other legacy stuff that I've just talked about. 
Yeah, I mean, it is so important to know the history of a place, isn't it? It makes a big difference to understanding what you might expect or what risks. Yeah, for sure. So I'm wondering, what are the next steps for EPA science? Well, we're now shifting to doing sampling in regional areas, and that work started today. And we'll be collecting floodwaters, and later on, once they've abated and receded, we'll be collecting uh, sediments in regional areas to try and characterise the composition and potential risk of harm that people may face in those areas. And I imagine they'll be different from what you find in city areas. We anticipate that because we've added different elements of concern to those waters and sediments, such as pesticides, because many of these places that are impacted are draining agricultural areas where you know pesticides are used as an integral part of land management during the production of food and crops and animals. And I understand some of those chemicals are banned in other countries. Yes, and I'm afraid I can't give a list of which ones are and which ones aren't, but I think on the whole, Australia is pretty compliant with global rules. But nevertheless, people will be concerned that residual amounts of pesticides, for example, or endocrine disruptors or other chemicals of concern will have been entrained and are being deposited or in the water in locations where they live, where they weren't before. You also have pointed out earlier when we were speaking, the flood prone plains and lands are actually attractive places because there's lots of nutrients for farming and uh, for the soil, things like that. So they're attractive places for people to move into and for people to live. That is likely to continue. What do you think needs to happen? What do people need to be aware of? In terms of, you know, how do we manage these situations? One needs to create sufficient space for rivers to do their work. And their work includes flooding on the plain that sits adjacent to them because a floodplain is a plain that floods and will flood. As we can see through the shifts in climate change, the extremes appear to be getting worse, which might mean that our flood events become more frequent. And we've certainly seen that in New South Wales. So if we are to continue building on floodplains, some sufficient accommodation and design needs to be uh, proffered to the river during high magnitude low frequency floods so that we have less damage, the water can be drained through the system and drain out and rather than just accumulate on the floodplain. So in terms of contaminants, we have a program called Garden Safe and people can submit their samples from their backyard for analysis through that program. I think really that's what we need to be cognizant of moving forward. We need to just create accommodation, get our soils tested, but also with an eye on the fact that we have gardens and environments that we can enjoy most of the time and we should focus on that. Yes, and some of the things you just said there, urban planning may also become an issue if we see these floods increasing. People might need to think about retrofitting, raising the homes or flood walls, etc. But in some situations, that's pretty difficult. And and, when you get a really massive flood, no matter what you do, it becomes really difficult to mitigate against. And we saw Herculean effort up in Echuca when they built kilometres long flood wall to protect the town. So these communities coming together to do that, to look after each other and protect each other. And we've certainly seen lots of that, people looking after each other uh, over these last few months and weeks. Um, And it does seem we need to think about the future and some of the ideas Mark suggested for preparing for floods. That was Mark Taylor, Victoria's Chief Environmental Scientist at the Environmental Protection Authority, or EPA, 
in Victoria and an honorary professor of environmental science and human health at Macquarie University. And if you want to check out his paper, we'll be putting it on our website. And it was published in The Conversation, and the title is What's in the Mud? Flood Victims' Fears Eased by Early Test Results. So big thank you to Mark. You're on Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. Here's Aluya with play. And she's a Saudi-British artist, and she incorporates some Arabic um, themes within her music. Really love that sound. 
Coming up now on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, I'm going to be speaking with Greg Denham. Greg Denham is on the line, and uh, he's, um, I'm sorry, let me just start that again. Greg Denham's on the phone this morning, and uh, he's Co-Health's Community Partnerships Facilitator, based at the their CBD Streets Health Program. So welcome back to 3CR, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you with us this morning. And uh, I know you've been living in a kind of flood-prone area as well. Uh, how are things where you are? Uh, they're not too bad at the moment. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was very scary. Uh, I live very close to the Creswick Creek, which came up about six or seven metres. Um, yeah, we were 100 metres from that creek. It was yeah, very, very worrying. But uh, fortunately, yeah, we... Um, we escaped, unlike uh, many other people. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. such a, such a relief to hear that things were okay, mm. at least in your home. And I'm sure that community, like other communities, have been pitching in and supporting each other. Yeah, yeah, we're just waiting for the uh, rain to stop and it seems to dry out a bit. So. Yeah, well, the weekend <laughs> is looking good. That's good. Yeah. So, Greg, welcome back. And um, I'm just wondering if you could tell everyone, because some people may not have heard you the last time you were on, but just maybe begin by telling people listening about the CoHealth CBD City Streets Health Program. I understand it's a wraparound service. So so maybe just a little bit about that before we continue. Yes, certainly. So it's been going for nearly 12 months and it's based in the city, in the CBD. And uh, it's a new service that's taking a very comprehensive approach towards uh, meeting the needs of people who are uh, disadvantaged, often street-based, uh, people who may be, um, you know, have chronic levels of drug dependency, homelessness, mental health and other um, range of yeah, uh, health and medical conditions. So it provides a, a real comprehensive service that includes outreach workers, uh, nurses, uh, we have a doctor, uh, and we provide uh, linkages with other uh, health programs uh, such as dental and podiatry. So we, we believe that the program is an opportunity for people to access health services that often they try to access in the past but haven't been able to. So, it's a, yeah, it's a very um, <clears throat> unique service in many respects. So that type of service comprehensiveness um, is, is a pretty new approach um, as far as, you know, we, we, we know. So we're pretty proud of it. Yeah. Yes. And look, I mean, it sounds to me like when you bring all those different, both health professionals and different people, different, you know, backgrounds, uh, professional backgrounds in, that you're recognizing the complexity of the issues for the people you're working with. Of course, that's right. Uh, we talk about multiple and complex needs, and many of the people that we talk with out on the streets uh, have, have been in a situation that, or those situations for, for quite a number of years. And their, um, you know, their, their situation is quite complex. Complex. They're often transient, or they're sleeping rough. Um, they have mental health issues. So we we engage with with um, the people that we meet out on the street. We have a lot of peer based workers who kind of really connect and engage and, and build that relationship and and work on a level of trust. So yeah, then we can sort of. Um, work with a person around what is it they need, what are their immediate needs, what do we need to do to basically, first of all, keep them alive and keep them healthy and then down the track see what options, um, you know, they want in terms of uh, maybe changing things that are, in, that are happening in their lives which may make their lives better. So that, that's the way the 
you know, the system, the service that we deliver operates. Yeah, well, it sounds incredibly important, and uh, it's great to know that people are out there doing that work. Now, Greg, when we chatted a few weeks ago, we discussed the recent data from the coroner's court report regarding overdose deaths and how important the medically supervised injecting room has been in reducing overdose deaths. But today I'd like to come back to that issue of overdose and to look at like who is more likely to experience an overdose. Uh, can we start maybe with that? Yeah, well, I think the number one message is that anyone is at risk from overdose. And I know we're talking about mostly illicit drugs here, particularly uh, heroin, but uh, any anyone can overdose from a drug if they take a drug that, that's uh, greater than their body can tolerate. So uh, we mustn't um, forget about, you know, prescription drugs and even alcohol. You know, you can overdose from alcohol. So the uh, coroner's uh, report clearly stated that, um, you know, we, we still have 500 deaths, double the road toll every year. And we know from our research in the past that two-thirds of the people that overdose have a history of opiate dependency, heroin use. So the, as far as um, heroin overdose is concerned, the ones that are at risk are usually people that have had a period of um, abstinence. They may have been into prison or they've tried to give up for a while or they're using other um, central nervous system depressants and they're using maybe um, alcohol or benzodiazepines or cannabis and they try to, you know, keep away from the heroin and then they go back to heroin use when they're uh, at the same level when their uh, tolerance is quite high and then they overdose. So we often find people post 30, 30, 35, 40, that's often the high high risk age as far as overdose is concerned because that's when people are starting to say, look, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, 15, 20 years. I need to kind of think about, you know, stopping this. And then that's that period of when they give up the drug for a while, they use other drugs, but then they go back to heroin use, so they relapse, and then that, that risk of overdose kicks in. Yeah. How significant is the fact that heroin is illegal in the, in the overdose, in the numbers of overdoses? Well, it, well, it means, first of all, that uh, there's a significant amount of stigma and discrimination that goes with that. So seeking medical and health advice is often very problematic and difficult for people who've got uh, a problem with their heroin use. So we, we know that people are reluctant to um, access health services because they're worried about uh, be, you know, first being able to get into those health services. And also we know that if um, a person is caught with an amount of drugs and they're charged by the police, that, uh, that I guess, record or that, that um, <clears throat> you know, criminal conviction stays with them for a long time. So it means that that follows them and the burden and the weight of stigma and discrimination that follows them throughout their lives is a huge factor. So it's another, I guess it's another nail that um, means that that person's life is really, um, you know, you're behind the eight ball if you have a conviction for, you know, heroin or other types of drug use. So it's a a huge factor in overdose because people are reluctant to access health services and other types of services. So that, that adds to the weight of the risk. Yes, and so we've heard in the news just a few weeks ago that the ACT has become the first Australian jurisdiction to decriminalise possession of illicit drugs in small quantities. This means that people found with small amounts of nine different types of illicit drugs will not be criminally prosecuted, and some of those drugs are referred to um, are, I think, heroin, cocaine, speed, 
And um, so if they are found uh, with small amounts, they won't be criminally prosecuted and they will be cautioned or fined or referred to a drug diversion program. So I'm wondering, what impact do you think these new laws, when they come in, will have on overdoses, for example? Well, um, it will certainly have a big impact uh, as far as, um, you know, as I said before, uh, the reducing the stigma and discrimination around uh, illicit drug use. I, I think, you know, when we talk about overdose, we have to recognise the impact that um, drugs such as heroin ha- have on a person, not only in terms of the risk around their health and well-being, but also, you know, a criminal conviction means that the person will find it very, very difficult to get a, a job. They'll find it very difficult to, you know, access other kinds of um, uh, health services. You know, we've, we've seen, for example, in many countries where um, drugs have been decriminalised and we provide education and support programs, then that person's life is stabilised. And so a lot of the risk factors are reduced. A lot of those risk factors that that go with the use of um, illicit drugs are reduced and often eliminated. So it enables a person's life to become stabilised. It's just one step in in the right direction. So uh, treatment is another option, which is really important, such as methadone or buprenorphine or some drug that uh, substitutes for their heroin use, which is a big factor in reducing overdose. So... You know, it's just one component of multiple components that reduce the risks of a person of a person overdosing and enables a person's life to be stabilised, which is really important. Yes, and as you say, you know, the ACT is not doing this in the dark. They can draw on Portugal, for example, as a model which decriminalised all drugs over 20 years ago. What was the result there? Well, what they found was that they... Uh, they decriminalised drug use, they, all of the money they saved from policing and the courts and the prison system they put into education, treatment uh, and looked at options for improving access to healthcare and it significantly reduced the, the overdose rates. HIV rates dropped. So a, across a number of measures, uh, Portugal has been um, put up as a model of success in terms of decriminalisation. But it's also been decriminalised in many other places in Europe as well. So it, 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 it's not uh, totally based around Portugal. Um, there are other places where drugs have been decriminalised. And I think this is something we need to, to be mindful of, that you know, uh, we, we look at Portugal quite a lot, but there are other good examples as well. I think what Portugal did was groundbreaking and it's always been shown to be a great model. And I think it's something that you know, removing criminal penalties for drug use is something that we should seriously consider um, in in other states, including Victoria. Yes, for sure. And I'm sure it would also have an impact on reducing prison populations as well. And that's become a huge issue lately. Well, it has. You know, know, we have one of the highest rates of um, incarceration in Australia, if not the world. And uh, I think we need to reconsider that, that approach. Uh, that there are lots of options that we can look at, particularly in terms of drug use and drug dependency, which will divert people away from the prison system, which will, which in the end will save the community, you know, uh, millions of dollars. Which I think, if it's, you know, at this point in time, if nothing else, the economic consideration is something we should should seriously consider. Yes, definitely. And just coming back to Melbourne now, uh, from from the ACT, 
When you joined us in the studio a few weeks ago, you advised that a new sobering up centre had been set up in the city. Can you tell us just a bit more about the rationale behind it and how the early days have been? Well, the rationale behind it was a number of recommendations from coroner's reports that said that uh, pub- public intoxication should no longer be a crime and that we shouldn't be putting people um, you know, in, in the cells for um, being being drunk in a public place. So this has been an issue for, around for quite some time. As you know, Judith, I was formerly uh, with Victoria Police and there was discussions about this a long time ago, but I think it was just too difficult to work out. Unfortunately, since then, there have been a number of deaths um, in custody around uh, people being arrested for uh, public drunkenness. And so from those recommendations, a new... Uh, service has been implemented in a trial phase with the plan to decriminalise public drunkenness at the end of next year. So the the program that CoHealth is running is in the city of Yarra. It's called a Sobering Up Service. A number of agencies, agencies are involved in um, this program. We, um, CoHealth, have an outreach team that works from Thursday to Sunday night. Um, they work with licensees and police uh, around uh, identifying people who are at risk from being drunk in a public place. And then that person uh, volunteers or accepts the help that the service provides and then they are conveyed to a sobering up service, which is uh, run by the Salvation Army in the city. There's also um, an Indigenous service as well, which works on the same principle. So, and that's obviously staffed by Indigenous um, healthcare workers. So we have a nurse an outreach worker, a peer outreach worker working around Yarra in the evenings and night um, on those days, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays. So, and it seems to be working quite well. We're getting a lot of positive feedback about the service. It's mostly for people who are intoxicated and at risk. It's not a taxi service. It's a program where people who are at risk, they've, they've obviously got you know quite intoxicated and uh, they need someone or need a service to assist them to remain safe. That's how it works. Well, Greg, that's really good news and good to hear. Just We're just about to run out of time, but can you just give us the details of how people can access access that service? I think there's a phone number. Is that right? Uh, There is. Actually, I haven't got it on me because I'm at home, but I'm happy for people to um, contact you if they want to get in touch with the service. I'll, uh, I'll forward the uh, number to you, Judith, and if you could read it out on air. That's fine. Sorry. That's fine, Greg. Thank you for that, and I'll do that towards the end of the show, That's and we'll okay. also put it on our website. So Some of the limitations of working in the country is I don't have a very good reception here, so um, so I'm just on my phone, but I'll, I'll give you those details. Yeah. And, yeah. and Greg, thank you so much, I mean, you know, for making time this morning, and I did say to Grace early on, you know, I don't know what the phone connection's going to be like, <laughs> uh, but it's been great. So, so wonderful to talk to you, and thank you for joining us on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Again, always great to hear from you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, And that was Greg Denham, Co-Health's Community Partnerships Facilitator, based at their CBD City Streets Health Program. And it sounds like such a fantastic program and so important. And over to you, Grace. Yep, so... Right up before we head on, we'll, I'll be speaking to Jordan Zhao, who is the former digital strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and head of social media for the Special Broadcasting Service. So stay tuned.
Nam Melbourne Slut Walk is once again taking to the streets in the fight against victim blaming and slut shame. In the past year, we have seen how deeply still rape culture is ingrained in our highest institutions, from the media to federal government. This cannot be tolerated. To take a stand, join the 2022 Slut Walk at 1pm on the 19th of November outside the Victorian State Library. Slut Walk is a 3CR supporter. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Online conspiracies, addiction and narcissism. A lot of us have probably encountered an anti-vaxxer or self-obsessed narcissists who clutter our social feeds, online conspiracy theorists, or a child who has their face buried into their smartphones. And some of us might have may live with one. We know this happens a lot, and but have we tried to pull people or even ourselves back from the brink of digital abyss? Joining me this morning is Jordan Zhao, who is the formal digital strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and head of social media for the special broadcasting service. Discussing his newly released book, Disconnect, and we're going to be looking at, uh, on it and to have a slight understanding of being pushed to extremes online. Uh, hi, Jordan. How are you? Hi, Grace. Good to be with you. Good to be with you today. Um, so your book actually just released yesterday, so very, very exciting. Could you give yeah. us a slight brief explanation of what Disconnect is about? Absolutely. So the book is called Disconnect, Why We Get Pushed to Extremes Online and How to Stop It. And so really it's about some of the most urgent issues we're seeing as a result of the way the internet and social media is currently set up. And as you alluded to earlier, the way it's structured is around some personas that encapsulate those issues. So, for example, people like online conspiracy theorists who fall down the rabbit holes of conspiracies, you know, freedom fighters, the people who protest lockdown mandates and vaccines, social media narcissists, trolls, screen addicts, etc. And the idea is that we all know somebody like this now, and, you know, they're not crazy people from far away. You know, they're really one degree removed. You know, often they're, you know, people that we uh, might actually really care about, and sometimes it might actually affect us personally. So, you know, it really felt like there was an escalation of these sort of characters and these sort of issues, and so the book is really shining a light on what's actually happening because we're starting to see it all around us. 
Yes, definitely. And yeah, it definitely covers a lot on different people and what they have been, I would say, believing about online. And so what, what made you think of writing this book? Well, how, how did you start with it? Yeah, so I've been researching these issues for a while. But uh, the reason for the book is because it really felt like there was an escalation, uh, particularly over the last few years. So, you know, we know there are problems with disinformation and fake news. We know the way the Internet's kind of currently set up is quite harmful. But what I started to see was an uptick of these characters over the last few years. And, and that idea that we all know something like this now really started to get validated. And so I interviewed, you know, a lot of different people. And, yeah, they, they all said, you know, this is either affecting me directly or I definitely know somebody who's like this. So it felt like there was something bigger going on that we needed to discuss and that what the book is about is really trying to unpack what's happening and that a lot of it has to do with the technology and the design of the current setup of the internet. Jordan, it's Judith here. Hi. Um, I, hi. And, uh, and look, thanks for this book. I'm really looking forward to reading it because I think I can benefit from it myself. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I'm curious, you mentioned your interviews. How did you locate your people to interview? Yeah, a lot of different ways. So, you know, obviously I, I had to be careful. Um, so firstly, I, you know, the, the interviews are anonymized. So um, a lot of the case studies have their names changed. But what was actually surprising is that there's a lot of them around. So, you know, if you go onto certain forums or even if you go onto like Instagram and follow a specific hashtag, for example, you know, it, it's quite easy to find um, people who are, you know, very concerned with a particular... So, you know, to give you one specific example, you know, last year we saw a lot of protests against the lockdowns and mandates, and often, you know, those people were actually very happy to share their experiences online through a hashtag or live stream their experience. So they're actually quite easy to find. And I, I guess that was one of the surprising things about going through this process is like I was saying, it kind of these characters are sort of all around us now. They're not they're not far away at all. It's it's happening kind of everywhere. Yes. I see. And and then also after you have found these people and uh, talked to them about things uh, regarding their experiences. So we, we can tell that this book uh, is obviously based on um, personal case studies and like a lot of them cover different different topics. Like some of them came from maybe believing about the um, anti, uh, vaccination and maybe some is about something regarding uh, any online conspiracy theories that are about... Uh, maybe children bring abuse or something. And then it's obviously all really different personal uh, stories that happen. So how did you try to um, connect to understand the psychological aspect and, and your expertise as a tech person, especially because your, 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 your job is as a digital strategist, so you might not really understand on the psych- psychological aspect? Yeah, definitely. So there's, there's a lot of research or there's a growing body of research being developed that looks at how harmful the current setup of the internet is. So, you know, the structure of each chapter is, as you mentioned, you know, there are a few case studies because it's always really interesting listening to other people's stories. But then I do go into quite a bit of detail about 
you know, the underpinning psychology behind it or what's the latest research on, for example, addiction or online radicalization. And I wanted to make sure to connect the two so that, you know, it, firstly, so that it's credible and that what we're seeing is actually a bigger phenomenon that's happening. And it's to do with how the current setup of the internet is, is developed. And I should say that uh, each chapter also focuses a lot on solutions. But I wanted to make sure that I don't just present the problems and that there's actually, uh, you know, a lot that we can do to do these things. So it, I'm not just, you know, doom and gloom. I wanted to make sure that people felt like, you know, if they do encounter these issues themselves, that there's something they can do about it. Yes, and obviously, yeah, definitely one of the main things that we want to bring up from this book is um, how do we stop it? How do we stop these people from being pushed to extremes online? Was it was it a very uh, was it very complicated to get into that expect um, get to that part of trying to find solutions? Yeah, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do for sure, and um, each chapter has two types of recommendations. So mm-hmm. what we can do as individuals to try and address it. But really, I think a lot of the work has to be done at an institutional level. So what what kind of regulation does government have to put in place? You know, what kind of restrictions do we need to put in place in the tech platforms themselves? Because obviously, they're the ones who are facilitating this. So I think a lot of it has to do with actually making sure or forcing the digital platforms like Facebook, like YouTube, to start to address this directly because it shouldn't have to fall on us as individuals to sort out this mess. A lot of it really should be done at a, at a group, at an institution uh, level. So each chapter has two types of recommendations to make, to make sure that people feel like there's something they can do about it. Mm, definitely. And then... And so, <laughs> sorry, Judith, go ahead. We were just looking at each other. So I, I, I wanted to say it's so encouraging um, to to und- to know that there are some things people can do. Because there's so many stories that you feel a little bit helpless about afterwards, yeah. and uh, it's good to know that there are some possible strategies. It's not all on us, but I guess it is on us to some extent to lobby our members of parliament and lawmakers. That's right. So I think we need to come at it from from both angles, as you say. You know, it, it, uh, you, for example, if you're going through this, you, do you have to wait until the next legislation is put in place? You know, that's probably going to take a long time. So you do. There are some things that individuals have to do themselves, and there are some things that you know institutions have to do. But hopefully, I provided both of those types of recommendations in the book. Mm, definitely. And then, yeah, now, now it just comes down to the main question. Uh, why, why do people get disconnected from reality, you know? And the whole thing about the book is about people being disconnected. Is, that, is there a reason why that's the case? I think so. It's, it's obviously complex. But what we're starting to see is that the way social media in particular and the current digital platforms, so the biggest tech platforms, the way... They prey on some of our um, innate vulnerabilities. So, you know, for example, um, during the pandemic, obviously people were, you know, very worried and concerned. But, you know, that fear was kind of twisted online and, you know, to the point where um, it became an issue. So particularly what a lot of we're seeing with conspiracies is, you know, you might start with one video that's kind of a little bit unconventional because you're curious 
But the way social media platforms are set up is it keeps feeding you videos like that and it keeps feeding you more and more extreme versions so that there's definitely um, a funneling process. And, you know, often we refer to these as rabbit holes because you sort of get stuck, you know, like so you might be curious or worried about something, but if you keep spending um, time on those platforms, they keep shoving the same sort of conspiracy videos and it keeps escalating and then, you know, next thing you know, very quickly, you know, you're full of these quite dangerous and harmful thoughts. So there's definitely something in the design of the platforms that's escalating that process, even though it might start outside of it. So I, I, I do place a lot of the focus on the technology platforms of today. Mm, I see. Yep. Yeah, I think it's it's still quite hard to understand and know and think why people... Um, get disconnected that way but obviously um, maybe it's because of personal experiences and again uh, we try to emphasize that this is all based on personal experience uh, personal stories that all different at all differ and I think that's where the complication comes in trying to understand how do we try to solve uh, solve the solution I mean solve the situation for each person right yeah definitely yep um, yep Sorry, um, it was a bit the uh, connection there. But, yeah. Oh, I, I was saying, and yeah, you're right in that everybody's experience is, is a little bit different, but there are common patterns that I sort of saw throughout researching the book. And I think it, it, there is um, a clear reason in terms of that radicalization happening, and a lot of it is to do with the design of the current technology platforms. Mm, interesting. Well, about talking about current technology, it's going to probably be too much for our listeners this morning. Yeah, yeah. But that's okay, because we also don't want to give too much away from the book. Uh, so, yeah, Jordan, just one final question, because just um, for our listeners to know, could you share to our listeners why we should be reading this book? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's very timely. And um, the, the central thesis and challenge of the book, if you like, is that you definitely know one of these people. Um, they're probably near you, and you know you may not want to admit that, but I think we all know one of these characters now. And so there's a, there's a bigger thing happening, and we ought to understand what's happening so that we can start to a- a- address that. Um, and it's very readable, I think, you know, it's it's one of the few books that's really looking at these issues at the moment. Um, and for example, a lot of the people that I spoke to said, you know, there's not enough being done. So, uh, you know, I think it's um, hopefully a really great contribution to this subject matter. Definitely, and and this will be a good, I would say, a good start for people to have hopeful conversations on how to use the internet safely and for social good. Most definitely. Definitely. Yep. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, Jordan, for um, having a chat with me today. That was that was really lovely to listen about your new book. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jordan. Bye. Bye. And that was Jordan Jiao, the former digital strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the head of social media for the Special Broadcasting Service, talking about his newly released book, which is uh, titled Disconnect. The book is actually now available at all good bookstores and online. You can head to Monash University's publishing website and just look for publishing.com.
monesh.edu uh, forward slash product forward slash disconnect. And you can find the book there to purchase. Hot off the press. Definitely. So how what did you think about that, Julia? How was oh, it? Oh, look, I mean, I just thought it, it's going to be very useful. I'm, I'm so so not a tech person. And it sounds to me from what Jordan was saying that it's, um, you know, it's language that I will understand. It's also interesting that he didn't say it was, you know, located within individuals particularly, although there is a psychological aspect, but that it's a structural matter that really does need to be addressed. And, um, I mean, I'm on Optus, and since the Optus um, breach, data breach, I've been getting, I've found, I mean, I'm not getting a lot, but I'm getting a few more. So, and I'm sure you would have experienced this. You look up, a, you decide you might want to go on a holiday, you look something up, and all of a sudden all these things come in to your place about, oh, here's here's the holiday resort in this place. Not that I'm going to a resort, mind <laughs> you. But anyway, it just seems like, you know, out there in the world, people know what you're doing more than is really comfortable. Yeah, and especially when some of some of us we feel the need to post about what we share and on social media and stuff, and yeah, even 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 if you don't post, somehow someone knows what you're doing. And uh, like, sometimes I think they know what's in my head. Exactly, and then it's just <laughs> yeah, and that's that's what social media is so dangerous about is that you you didn't even say anything, you didn't even maybe put it search for something regarding what you were thinking about on on your social media or like your internet, but somehow. They know what you're thinking about, and they suddenly just give you a recommendation or some yeah. of something that you were looking for. And I'm just like, wow, that yeah. you got into our head real quick. How how did you do that? Yeah, yeah. total totally Big Brother territory. Big yeah. Brother definitely watching. Yeah, so. yeah. So internet is actually a very scary place. So I think this book is very a very good way for people to understand. Um, why it's a very dangerous place and how we should, you know, get try to use it safely and use it wisely. So yes. yeah, I'm, I've actually started reading the book because yeah, I got I got a copy of it, and um, yeah, it's great going good so far. I'm not, I don't want to give too much away, but um, it's, you've been very you've been very careful about that this morning, Grace. You're yes, just, yeah, you want <laughs> encouraging I, people to buy it themselves. Yes, yeah. definitely, I do definitely do want people to read this because although a lot of us might not be book readers, we might might not be book romans, but I think. It's a very good book to understand that you know this by looking at different personal lives and their and how they have tackled this situation of um, experiencing someone who uh, has been pushed to extreme online or maybe they themselves have been pushed to extreme online and I think trying to resonate with that for some people I think if you once you read the book and if you do resonate with the people that you would really understand that the internet really really is a dangerous place and you definitely need to know how to control yourself because when you're once it happens it happens and you can't stop yourself and the addiction addiction is bad addiction gets really really bad for people because mm-hmm. so you know, thank you so much for bringing us that story this morning grace mm-hmm. and i found it and as you say very timely and timely in that the book has just been released so yeah definitely. yeah so that's great and it interestingly fits with other themes that we've been talking about this morning, and particularly yeah. Claudia's piece early yeah. on. And also just want to say again that Claudia will be back next week, so we'll yes, be definitely. excited to have her in the studio again. Yeah, so excited for Claudia to be coming back in, although I won't be here when Claudia is here, but I'm definitely going to be tuning in as I'm preparing for my flight. <laughs>
Yes, and, and we have two announcements. One, I spoke to Greg Denham earlier, and he's texted in the phone number for the Sobering Up Center, which is 944-858-45. I'll just say that again, and it will be on our website, 944-858-45. And also a reminder that tonight... Uh, and for people listening uh, who've been distressed by the tragic death of Cassius Turvey in Perth on October 13th, there's going to be a vigil for him. That's tonight in Nam on Wurundjeri Country at the Aboriginal Advancement League at 6 p.m., 6 p.m. this evening. And that's at 2 Watt Street in Thornbury. The Aboriginal Advancement League, 6 o'clock tonight, Wednesday and that's 2 Watt Street in Thornbury. Yes. And then um, for Claudia, who's coming in next week, um, she'll be speaking about International Whaling Commission resol- resolution regarding saving whales from plastic pollution and also dwelling on Australian War Memorial's hazy promise to have greater reflection on the frontier wars. Fascinating, amazing stories. Look forward to next week. Yes, look forward to next week. So, yeah. Uh, So now let's stay tuned for Stick Together. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.